Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. Thank you for your support. Uh, my name is Taylor, and uh, you know, like we always, we always want to start out by saying that we're so happy that you guys enjoy what we're doing, and uh, you know, we enjoy this creation process. And yeah, we want to keep doing this. I do want to shout out the social media stuff that we have on Twitter. We are at Beyond underscore Breakers. Instagram Beyond the Breakers podcast. Email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. The pod will always be ad-free. We just use money from the Patreon to help with uh, web hosting, research materials, that kind of thing. So that stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and bring in Tanner. And uh, Tanner, how you doing? Doing really well. I'm happy to be here. It was an eventful uh, week. Last night, I went out to a restaurant for the first time in well over a year. Nice. That's fun. We were we were up in Green Bay uh, having having dinner with some of my work associates. Uh, I got to eat dinner uh, staring right at Lambeau Field. So very cool. Nice. Very Excellent. cool. Hinterland Brewery uh, recommended if you're ever in Green Bay or technically a Schwabanon, uh, Wisconsin. But uh, yeah, Maybe. definitely uh, check it out. Yeah, it sounds like fun. It's it's nice being able to get back out there and do that kind of stuff. I had a nice maple bock. Mm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Very tasty. So anyway, we're here. Uh, one thing I did want to throw in here for our listeners is a little bit about the upcoming bonus content for June. I think I mentioned it in the Q&A that I wanted to do this, and we have confirmed that we will do this. We're going to be watching and, of course, discussing the 2000 film The Perfect Storm nice. for our June bonus content. It's almost, almost exactly 21 years since this film came out. You and I saw it in theater. When it was out. Yep, I do. I remember going to see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got George Clooney. We've got some early Mark Wahlberg action. We've got John C. Riley in this film. I forgot he was in this. Diane Lane. It'll be a good time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally forgot that John C. Riley is in this movie. It's weird. I have the book also, so I'm going to try and get through the book in time for us to record this episode. Uh, nice. So I can. Uh, yeah, that'll be fun. Kind of see what the differences are, but. Uh, I don't know. I remember loving this movie in 2000 when I was 12. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll see, see if, how much I like it now. We'll see if it holds up. <laughs> okay, that'd be fun. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. And with that stuff out of the way, I know we got a pretty long one. You said you're surprised how long the notes were. Uh, it's also kind of a, a bread and butter topic for our pod since we're going back to the Great Lakes. But we are doing a new lake. It is not just Lake Michigan. It is... Uh, just barely Lake Huron. Technically Lake Huron. Technically. It's almost Lake Michigan, but we are venturing up to the Straits of Mackinac, which is a really beautiful part of the country. I'm assuming a lot of our Great Lakes listenership is already pretty aware of it, mm-hmm. but I know we have a lot of listeners that are from other places or from Europe, and for those people, I'll describe it. It's kind of the very like top of mainland Michigan, like right where it connects to the, or, you know, approaches the Upper Peninsula. Um, there's a big bridge that connects the two. There's Mackinac Island, which is really cool. I know we've both been there. Um, it's all like horse and buggies and kind of touristy, but it's fun. It's, it's pretty. It's also very strategically important when you're trying to establish the border between Canada and the United States. There's a lot of history up there, a lot of forts and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, if you're ever doing like a Great Lakes tour, I would definitely highly recommend the Mackinac area. Um, it's, it's beautiful. Or if you are the British government and you're trying to bring the United States to heal, also very important place to go. 
Very important. So what we're going to be talking about today is the SS Cedarville. So we'll just kind of jump into it and I will start, uh, start, we'll start with the background and the history like we always do. So the Cedarville was built in 1927 by Great Lakes Engineering Works in River Rouge, Michigan. Uh, she's originally named the AF Harvey until her name is changed in 1957. She's 588 feet long, 60 feet wide, and has a draft of 22 feet. Uh, at the time of the incident that we're discussing today, she's captained by a Martin Yapik of Rogers City, Michigan. If Rogers City sounds familiar, it's also the home of the Carl D. Bradley. And we'll kind of get into that here in a second. Yeah, when I um, when I was reading the notes, I was like the uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio meme, where he's he, mm. where he's pointing yeah. at the screen. That's yep. When I saw <laughs> when I saw Rogers City. Uh, so upon completion, she worked for the Pittsburgh Steamship Company, and that's a division of U.S. Steel. In 1956, she's transferred to the Bradley Transportation Company, which is a different division of U.S. Steel. And that should sound familiar because uh, they are also the owner of the Carl D. Bradley. Mm -hmm. And it's during the transfer, she's also converted to a self-unloader like the Carl D. Bradley was. And that's also when the name change takes place. So she actually works a similar route to the Carl D. Bradley. She primarily hauls limestone from Rogers City, Michigan to Gary, Indiana. And you'll hear calisite. To Calisite is like the port. Calisite and Rogers City are effectively the same place. So another topic I want to talk about before we dig too deep into the story. Again, if you're from the Great Lakes region and you're into shipping, you already know this. But a lot of international people or people from other areas may not. It's uh, it's really common to see saltwater vessels on the Great Lakes. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive at first that it would be you know it would be weird, but it's not uncommon. Vessels enter the Great Lakes through the St. Lawrence Seaway, and once they're clear of the seaway, they can access all points on the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. So that's it's kind of interesting that you can have vessels from Europe or Asia or somewhere like that. Actually. When those clog shipments come in from Rotterdam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can get those straight to Duluth. I remember seeing it firsthand living in Superior and going over to Duluth and stuff. At that time, there was a lot of German and Dutch vessels and stuff. That a lot of them were bringing over um, components for like the, the big windmill farms and stuff. It was really common to see that import, and it was. It was just kind of weird thinking like, "Wow, this this ship came from Germany and now it's here mm-hmm. in Superior, Wisconsin." And, and really, who who better to get your windmill equipment from than the Dutch? <laughs> and then the only final point I'll make about that is obviously. All of these ships are brewed by really competent crews and competent captains. But the Great Lakes is just a really different environment than a lot of saltwater crews are used to working in. Everything's tight. Everything's confined. You know, you're constantly having to check stuff because you just don't have a lot of room to operate compared to the ocean. Mm-hmm. So just keep that in mind as we're, we're going through this story. Uh, saltwater vessels will play a role in some of this. So with that stuff out of the way, that brings us to what we'll title uh, the incident portion of the podcast. This brings us to May 7th, 1965. The Cedarville departs Calisite, Michigan at 0500, bound for Gary, Indiana. And she's carrying her typical cargo of limestone. Conditions at the time of her departure are less than ideal, but also not out of the ordinary for crews on the Great Lakes. Visibility is limited to 300 to 600 feet. Winds are light, air temperature 41 degrees Fahrenheit, and water temperature is 36 degrees. There's also some reports of thunderstorms in the areas uh, around the Straits of Mackinac. So again, like the weather is 
not perfect, but it's weather that you, you operate in. Like you're used to doing this mm-hmm. at the time. She's under the supervision of her captain. So he is involved. He's active. You know, he's not just in his room sleeping or something like that. He's directly involved in, in everything that's going on. So the vessel's using radar and uh, radio detection equipment to kind of establish her position. She's also equipped with standard AM and FM radio equipment. They're also checking all the navigational equipment and machinery prior to departing. So basically everything's working properly. There's no issues. Mm -hmm. There's no reason that anything shouldn't be working. This won't be one that will chalk up to a, like a a mechanical failure or like lack of maintenance or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Like everything's in proper working order. After clearing the Harbor at Calisite, the Cedarville made a course for the Straits of Mackinac full speed. And that'll be important. Keep in mind the full speed thing. It's foggy outside. Uh, the Cedarville then made several normal course changes that would have been associated with a ship traveling that route. And it's noted in the Coast Guard report that fog signals were activated due to conditions. So there's like an automated system of fog signals and everything. And those are those are functioning at the time mm-hmm. of this incident. At no point in this maneuvering were the engine speeds reduced. All they would be slightly slowed, but that was only due to conditions. It wasn't due to like any input by the captain or the crew. Upon reaching the Sheboygan traffic buoy, the Cedarville set a new course of 302 degrees towards the Mackinac Bridge. Shortly after doing this, the Cedarville is able to establish radio contact with the SS Benson Ford, which is another Great Lakes vessel. Mm-hmm. They're traveling in the opposite direction, and they're actually headed towards the, the Sheboygan traffic buoy from the bridge. A port-to-port passing arrangement was made verbally and signaled via whistle blast while the vessels are still two miles apart. And this passing arrangement is something that we should be familiar with. We've talked about that a few times now um, in a few different episodes. So the two vessels pass with about half a mile separation between them, and they're never able to even visually see each other. But everything works out, right? Like they've established contact. They've communicated. Both parties know what's going on. And that's the end of the episode. Uh, it's just yep, uh, everything it, went totally fine. Uh, <laughs> no problems. Everything's working. Communication is good. <laughs> so the Cedarville then resumed its course towards the Mackinac Bridge. And when it was three to four miles out, it establishes contact with a German vessel, the Weisenberg. And it's also headed in the opposite direction of the Cedarville. So again, this is where we're talking about the saltwater vessels being on the lakes. Here we go. Like we're like the Cedarville is now communicating with one of those vessels. Mm-hmm. Both vessels indicated their intentions to each other, and a port-to-port passing arrangement was made verbally. No passing signals were sounded, and visibility was an estimated twelve hundred feet. Uh, the captain reported that he had reduced the vessel to slow ahead at this time. But this is not backed up by any other testimony or records. Mm -hmm. So after all of this stuff that we're about to talk about happens, the captain wanted to make a special note that he had slowed down for this pass. But no one else reported that. The captain's the only person that's reporting that information. And hearing the word testimony makes it sound like things don't go so well. Uh, (laughs) Also, by verbally, you mean over the radio, correct? Yeah. Yeah, they're communicating via radio. It's not two guys yelling at each other. (laughs) so at 9 38 the weisenberg passed under the mackinaw bridge and around that time the captain of the weisenberg alerts the cedarville that there is a norwegian vessel ahead of the weisenberg so prior to that there was no knowledge there's another there's a ship in between these two ships that are communicating so that comes as a surprise surprises are bad in the fog 
you don't want surprises. <laughs> Last time we had a Norwegian ship surprising us in the fog was the Empress of Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, I believe believe that to be the case. It's something about Norwegian ships in the fog. Sorry, Norway. The captain of the Cedarville then attempts to communicate with the Norwegian vessel to arrange a passing agreement, but no contact is made. Captain Yopik of the Cedarville continued to get updates from the third mate on the radio position or on the radar position of the unknown vessel, but still no contact is made. As the range between the Cedarville and the unknown vessel decreased, two different versions of the events are told. So that's never good when there's two different versions of something, mm-hmm. when, when there's only one event going on. Right. So we'll go over, this is scenario one. This is according to the wheelman that is making the course changes for the, the Cedarville. So according to the wheelman, there was a course change to 325 degrees, and the vessel speed was reduced to half. The third officer continued to report the other vessel was closing in on them, and the bearing was not changing. One blast passing signals were sounded from the Cedarville in between fog signals. Shortly after that, the SS Toppelsfjord was observed coming out of the fog at an estimated 100 feet away. As the vessels converged, the captain ordered the engines full ahead and ordered hard left. That's scenario one. This is scenario two. This is relayed by Captain Yopik, the captain of the Cedarville. He claims that the vessel was heading slow ahead on a course of 310 degrees. So right away off the bat, there's a difference. He claims from the beginning the vessel's already moving at slow ahead, mm-hmm. whereas the first one, you know, they're slowing their speed to half from full. He also claims that the third officer was keeping him informed of other vessels' bearings via radar, and he states that other vessel, the other vessel showed a tendency to be widening out to port. One blast passing signals were sounded in accordance with Great Lakes rules in between the fog signals. After several unsuccessful attempts to contact the Norwegian vessel, the course was changed to the right following the recommendations of the third officer. The Topples Fjord was then sighted looming out of the fog at an estimated 900 feet. The helm was immediately ordered hard right and full speed ahead was rung up to the engines. When Cedarville's bow passed ahead of the other vessel, the helm was ordered hard left in an effort to swing the stern clear. So what we're left with is two, you know, they're not, they end in the same place, but how you get there is a lot different in those two versions of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, like in the first version, the vessel's moving at full speed and they order it to slow down in the captain's version. The vessel's already proceeding at a slower speed because of course he's being cautious. Mm-hmm. Those don't line up. It also, I know, I can't help but in the captain's version, he makes sure to point out that, well, I'm only working with the information the third officer is giving me. He seems to single out that person to be like, well, I'm doing what he told me to do. Mm-hmm. It just seems like he's trying to deflect a little bit of that blame right. um, onto other people. But both stories end with a topple steward looming out of the fog, bearing down on the Cedarville. And uh, that's basically an undisputed fact in this whole story. That definitely happened. I'm reminded somewhat, again, of the Empress of Ireland, how we talked about the sort of aftermath and the testimony of that, where you had conflicting testimony. And then if if both of these things are true, then nothing bad happened at all. Right. And the ships were totally fine. But as you said, the one fact we know is that that's not what happened. If only we had had Lord Mercy to come and sort this one out for us. (sighs) Where is he when you need him? (laughs) Dead in this scenario. (laughs) Very dead. (laughs) All right. 
So as we can see from the descriptions of these events, there's some key differences. How were they end with the same result? The Topple Fjord was on a steady heading and at a right angle to Cedarville's general approach. Another thing that is noted about the Topple Fjord, it's noted that the vessel had a bow that was ice strengthened and it raked forward. So the slant is going forward on the bow rather than the opposite, which we kind of talked about how that was a common redesign after the Empress of Ireland. Mm-hmm. But also it's ice strengthened because it's from Norway. So, you know, you're operating in less than ideal conditions. It's basically a battering ram. <laughs> it's not good. Well, I mean, de- depending on what you want to do with it. <laughs> so at 945, the top of Fjord's bow impacted the Cedarville near the number seven hatch on the port side. And it was at a near perpendicular angle. What's interesting is I read multiple accounts and the impact was minimal. Like, it wasn't like a, a massive collision or anything like that. A lot of the, um, like, firsthand testimonies that people were surprised with how light and everything it felt. Yeah, reading this, it was it was very hard for me to visualize this one. The way that it's described in the notes and the sources of, I don't know, it's a, it's almost just like, just like a, oops, sorry, and then it's like, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. The impact doesn't seem terrible. Right. We'll talk a little bit about the design of the Cedarville, and I think that plays a large role in it. There was no danger uh, signal sounded on the Cedarville at or prior to the collision, and there was no danger or passive signals issued by the captain of the Topplesfjord. He stated that he was poised to do so at the conclusion of Cedarville's very long passing blast, but since Cedarville loomed out of the fog and was still sounding her whistle, the captain considered the collision inevitable, and he did not make that signal. There was no reason to at that point, was his statement, basically. Hmm. The Topplesphere only remained embedded in the Cedarville side briefly. Because the Cedarville was still moving forward, it basically swept her off the side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's not like they stay connected very long. Like it's, it's very quick. At uh, 9.46, the Topplesphere stops its engines, and she would actually drift until about 11.15, at which point she would proceed to Mackinac Bay and lay anchor. She would launch two of her lifeboats once it became apparent that the Cedarville sank. So she does attempt to render aid once she's sure that she's okay. Mm -hmm. There's no known injuries reported uh, on either vessel that come as a direct result of the collision. And the approximate location of the collision is about 6,600 feet away from the south tower of the Mackinac Bridge. So this is happening quite literally at the Mackinac Bridge. The Topplesfjord suffers extensive damage to the bow, and then that damage extends back about 11 feet, but she is able to continue on. And that just shows you like how much force and mass you're dealing with in these things, that this was a light collision, but it's still there, there's damage to metal and steel 11 feet back on the vessel. Right. Like it's a, There's a lot of force being acted going on there. The effects of the Cedarville were much more drastic. The vessel was damaged both above and below the waterline, and immediately after the impact, the vessel took a list of port. Immediately following the collision, the Cedarville stopped her engines, sounded general alarm, and sent a mayday message. The chief officer went to assess the damage, while Captain Jopik contacted the Weisenberg and asked for the name of the Norwegian vessel. The chief mate reported to the captain by telephone that the Cedarville was taking massive amounts of water in her number two hold, and that an attempt to cover the hole with an emergency collision tarp was unsuccessful due to the size of the breach. Is a collision tarp, is this just like a very heavy 
tarp that you put over a hole? Uh, I'm not exactly sure like what it consists of or what it like, you know, what makes it up. But I mean, essentially, yeah, that's what they're trying to do is to cover this hole and, you know, stop it basically to, to mend, to mend the, the breach. Again, like I, I know nothing about the situation. I don't know what this is, but it just seems to me that a, like a tarp doesn't sound like the thing you need to fix a hole in a boat. Not really. I don't know. Does it? I don't know. So one thing to keep in mind with these type of vessels, and I, I've been on these type of ships before, just by being up in the Great Lakes. You know, you have opportunities to go and visit them sometimes, museum ships and stuff. If you've been down in the hold of these, you realize that these ships that carry iron ore and things like that. It's just a big space. Mm-hmm. Once you put a hole in the side of it, it's almost impossible to stop it. It's not like there's compartments that you can shut off or, you know, ways to contain it. Like once it's breached, mm-hmm. it's breached. And like you, it's really hard to, to prevent that water from coming in. And that's kind of what you're seeing. That's what we're going to see here is that this is a, not a survivable situation for this type of vessel. Mm-hmm. So the collision was reported to the Mackinac Island Coast Guard Station at 9.50. So pretty quickly, you know, information's being relayed. The Cedarville's two lifeboats were located on port and starboard on the afterhouse, which were, and they were swung into position. So there's two actual lifeboats on board the vessel. Uh, there's also two additional life rafts, and these would float free. So when they hit the water, they would inflate and they would, you know, they wouldn't like sink with the vessel. Even if they weren't launched, they would kind of self-launch. Mm-hmm. Did we talk about this already? Maybe I just skipped over this in my head. How, how many crew are on this ship? Oh, you know what? I don't think we did. I believe it was 35. Okay. I was just thinking the, the number of life lifeboats, but yeah, that seems adequate. I guess if you have a, a relatively small crew. Yeah. As far as like the ability to evacuate the vessel, like there, there's plenty of capacity. Okay. Not a Titanic situation <laughs> or anything like that. All right, so the crew that were not actively engaged in damage assessment or engine room work mustered on the spar deck, and they were in life preservers waiting for their instruction. It's noted that there was no panic or confusion by the crew while preparing life jackets, and three life jackets were brought to the wheelhouse, but only the helmsman was able to put his on. As soon as the damage to the vessel became apparent to the captain, he commenced operations to raise anchor and attempt to beach the vessel. Note that we've seen this action attempted in a few different stories, and it's not been successful. Mm -hmm. Uh, We saw it in Britannic. We saw it in Lady Elgin. I believe Empress of Ireland, at one point, they were attempting that. That It's a common thing to try to do. You know, If you know you're sinking, you want to get to shallow water. Mm -hmm. This story is going to prove exceptionally tragic because it was possible in this story. At 10.10, the Coast Guard on Mackinac Island heard the Cedarville over the radio. And they heard them report that they were attempting to beach near Mackinac City. And for those of you not familiar with the geography of the area, Mackinac City is located basically at the southern approach to the Mackinac Bridge. So there's Mackinac Island that's out in the Straits. And then there's Mackinac City, which is not on the island. It's actually on the mainland part of Michigan. So the Cedarville sets a course of 140 degrees and sets her engines to full speed. Suddenly at 1025, the Cedarville rolled to starboard and sank 17,000 feet south of the Mackinac Bridge uh, South Tower. So, Sorry, it's 17,000 feet away from the South Tower of the Mackinac Bridge. Oh, okay. So, so she doesn't make it far. About, was this like three miles? Yeah, about three miles. So the vessel, tra- so remember that they were about a mile away when the collision happened. Mm. The vessel travels 2.3 miles from the collision point 
to where it ultimately capsizes and sinks. They're basically still two miles away from where they would have needed to be to beach, according to the Coast Guard report. The problem in all this is that the report also notes that Graham Shoal is only one mile away from the collision location, and the closest point of land would have been Old Mackinac Point, which is 2.2 miles away. So what you're left with is the vessel traveled 2.3 miles. If they had made the proper decision, they would have made it to land. Mm -hmm. They traveled further than they needed to. So both locations were, in theory, within reach of the stricken vessel, However, the course to Old Mackinac Point would have uh, necessitated 215 degrees. And this means the Cedarville was actually moving away from the closest point of land when she attempted to beach. Hmm. So I don't know. That, that's exceptionally tragic. I feel like that this is avoidable. This didn't have to happen. It is. And I guess in my head, I think of beaching a vessel, I guess, it, like in this situation, it sounds easy. Just turn it and run it into land. But... Mm-hmm. I know that there's more to it than that. You've got to like know the closest actual point that's going to accomplish the goal. But still, um, it is it is interesting to see the kind of the discrepancy in the bearing that the ship takes and where they should have gone. Right, and you have to figure in a situation like this, the captain probably is relying on someone else to mm-hmm. make that calculation and figure it out. I would assume that you know this being a, a relatively consistent routine type of run you would think that they have good charts and they have a pretty good knowledge of, of shallows and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when we discuss some findings, actually, the Coast Guard has some thoughts on some of that ah, stuff. Interesting. All right. So a majority of the vessel's crew was standing by to launch lifeboats when she capsized. The number one lifeboat was never released and sank with the Cedarville. The number two boat was launched with several crew in it. And both lifeboats, or sorry, both life rafts were able to float free as the Cedarville sank. A majority of the crew, however, were not in lifeboats. They were tossed into Lake Huron, which, as we mentioned, the water temperature is like 36 degrees. It's not great. Mm-hmm. Not, not really where you want to be. Uh, it's noted that the third mate was last seen attempting to don his jacket. Remember, he was the one giving the radar um, information. And he's actually never seen again after the ship capsizes. Mm-hmm. Captain Yopik would later be found clinging to a life jacket that he was never able to put on. So he's actually plucked from the water alive. Okay. Um, so the captain does survive this one. Although, you know, it's not like it's necessarily a uh, seawall situation. Like he's doing his job. Mm-hmm. He's not abandoning ship or anything. So let's talk more about the German vessel Weisenberg. She's the vessel that immediately that had first made Cedarville aware of the Norwegian vessel. She is kind of tracking everything that's going on. And actually, it's a really fortunate thing that she's there. She launches lifeboats to assist Cedarville when she capsizes. She had actually sort of been following the Cedarville after all of this goes on, just to kind of see what was happening. So at 10.30, a lookout aboard the Weisenberg heard a man crying out in the water. And at 10.33, a man is sighted swimming in the water. Weisenberg launched a lifeboat, and they're able to actually rescue six men from the the actual lake. Uh, Cedarville's number two lifeboat and aft life raft were located and towed back to the Weisenberg. And a total of 25 survivors were taken to the Weisenberg where they're given food and first aid. It's noted that two of the men who are rescued died either on arrival or within an hour of being on board. And again, that's where you get into just the weather conditions and you can see how quickly, you know, life and death things happen when water's that cold. Like, these guys were rescued relatively quickly, and some of them still didn't make it. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, I, I want to kind of go back to that because it's really, it's sort of eye-opening to see that even in May, was it May 7th, the water being that cold, I think that is, yeah. it's very, I guess, enlightening as to just the, the conditions you're dealing with. I guess you could think that oh, it's it's relatively warm weather, but it, it really isn't in those conditions. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think you've experienced it in Wisconsin. Like, right. you know, like There's some May mornings where it's below freezing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's cold. It can still be very cold, especially in a survival situation. Mm-hmm. So, also, while this is going on, a Coast Guard vessel is launched from Mackinac Island at 9.55. And it's a little slow getting on scene. It doesn't arrive on scene until 10.30. But you have to remember that everything's covered with a pretty dense fog. So, this is not easy weather to be searching in. This vessel does find the forward life raft uh, at 11.55. But it's found empty. There's there's no bodies or no survivors located mm. in it. At 1024, Coast Guard Cutter from Mackinac, sorry, the Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac arrived on scene from Sheboygan, Michigan. Uh, she assumed command of the operations area. And at 1248, she receives the survivors that the Weisenberg had picked up. Uh, search and rescue operations would continue until May 12th, 1965, using both air and marine assets. So at that point, they uh, they pull the plug on it, and that's that's the end of that. They spend quite a bit of time searching for uh, bodies and things like that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk conclusions. Let's talk about the Coast Guard report and kind of what actually happened. So Coast Guard report concluded that the captain of the Cedarville operated the vessel in an unsafe manner considering the conditions that were present. The report concluded that the Cedarville was operated at nearly full speed, quote, almost up until the jaws of the collision. That's taken directly from the report. It's a very interesting wording. I feel like you you don't get government reports like that anymore. It's a different time. (laughs) Very poetic. It was found that the captain had ample time and information about traffic in the area, in and around the Mackinac Bridge, that he should have been more cautious. The report concluded that Captain Yopik established his intention of passing while at full speed when he set up a successful pass with the Benson Ford prior to the collision. So they're actually saying that that successful pass that he first made basically shows that he never had any intention of slowing down for conditions. Okay, so like basically doing that one successfully, it's like this is going to be the pattern that he follows. Right. Yeah, they're saying that he had already shown no inclination for slowing down for passing. And it worked fine the first time. It worked fine the first time, yeah. Uh, It's established that the Topolsfjord was being operated with the proper precautions in place for conditions. Further, it is stated that she was nearly stopped when the collision occurred. I thought that was a pretty interesting detail. Because keep in mind, the Topolsford is the one that hits the Cedarville. But according to the Coast Guard report, she's basically drifting. Mm -hmm. She is at a stop. So this is like the ultimate of just literally being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Uh, The final report concluded that Captain Yopik acted appropriately when attempting to beach his vessel. However, due to the ship's design, any impact she had suffered, it was a matter of when, not if, this vessel is going to sink. That's where we're, we're talking about like with the cargo, like with the whole design of these vessels. It's just a big space. It's just going to accumulate water if you've got a whole breach under the waterline. Mm-hmm. Similar to what we saw with like El Faro, what I was reading just recently in Into the Raging Sea about how once this thing passes a certain critical mass, there's there's nothing you can do because it's it's just a big open space. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of what you're dealing with here. However, the captain is faulted for placing his crew in peril 
due to overestimating how much time he had before the vessel was lost. So they say like, you know, you're trying to do the right thing by beaching, but you wait too long to actually evacuate the ship. He was faulted for not taking the most direct route to beaching the vessel. The report states that the captain should have immediately known that the course provided for beaching by the third officer was incorrect. So I think that's interesting. It's saying that, yeah, the third officer may have made a mistake in his recommendation, but the captain still has a duty to be like, no, that's wrong. We're not doing that. We need to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because at the end of the day, he's the captain, right? Like, he has to be checking everybody else. So I thought that was interesting. So the report also states that there was no apparent reason a radio contact could not be established by the vessels. They do give a couple factors that could have either hindered radio contact or been an explanation. First, there's thunderstorms in the area. So at this time, electrical storms could play interference with that kind of communication. They also state that there simply may not have been enough time to establish radio contact once the ships knew of each other. Because you have to keep in mind, they didn't even know each other were there until, what, a couple minutes before this, like two to three minutes before this happened. Mm -hmm. And they only know about each other because of the Weisenberg. So it's very interesting. The third possible explanation, it's possible that radio traffic was heavy due to the weather and that the vessels were attempting to contact each other, but actually talking over each other. So, I mean, you know, you've played with a radio or a walkie-talkie before. If I'm talking and you try to talk, like, neither one of us is going to hear each other. Right. A couple other things here. The captain and crew of the German vessel Weisenberg were credited with saving the lives of many of the Cedarville's crew. Uh, The Coast Guard reports that she operated in the best traditions of the sea immediately after the collision. And it really can't be, like, overstated, like, how important the Weisenberg is to all of this. That if she doesn't stop and, you know, kind of shadow the Cedarville, this is a lot worse because that crew is just in the water till the Coast Guard gets there. The Weisenberg does an excellent job of, you know, dropping lifeboats, rescuing people, and, and being right where she needs to be. The percentage of survivors that the Weisenberg is able to pick up here of the total survivors is um, is pretty impressive. She actually picks up, she picks up all of them. All of them, yeah, 100%. There yeah. you go. <laughs> I think it's just, it's a really cool thing because it shows how you have to be ready in a maritime situation. Like the Weisenberg's not even really involved in this incident, but they still have to be ready for emergency operations at the drop of a hat to, to assist. Yeah. And, ha- and like you said, having the presence of mind to sort of tag along and check on the situation mm-hmm. to be in position to rescue. Right. Finally, the report closed by recommending that Captain Yopik be subject to suspension and revocation proceedings with regards to his ability to master a vessel. He would initially plead not guilty. However, he would later change the plea to guilty and accept a one-year suspension. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find a lot of more information about him. I don't know that he can t- if he continued to sail or not. What I did find in a story that I read is that he basically became somewhat of a recluse in Roger City. Like, he lived the rest of his life there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I don't. I couldn't tell if he actually sailed again or not. I can't imagine wanting to, but, you mm-hmm. know, I guess if you've done it your whole life, perhaps, you know, it sounds more appealing. This is interesting. Another connection back to the El Faro story is this is kind of that situation of the captain survives, but then is still subject to discipline due to his actions, which is interesting because... The Coast Guard reports uh, in the aftermath of El Faro, basically the recommendation was this captain, uh, had he survived, would have been stripped of his captaincy. So sort of adding adding insult to injury a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting seeing something like that basically saying like, yeah, he died in the wreck, but like, this is what we would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, you're kind of getting that, seeing that played out a little bit that like, hey, 
you know, here's the bad things you did. Here's the good things you did. But at the end of the day, like you operated in a manner that was unsafe and you shouldn't be trusted in that position. Mm -hmm. Tough, but fair. And basically, I mean, it's that kind of thing where you can do a heroic thing, like attempting to beach the vessel and make the right decision, but you still put yourself in that position that you should have never been in. Right. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Okay. So in total, 10 men were lost in the collision and 25 survived. All 25 were picked up by the Weisenberg, like we discussed. You know, and although it has a lower death toll than the Carl D. Bradley, her sister ship, it's still a really tragic story because it still takes place in that same small town. These events take place within like six years of each other. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of talked about with the Carl D. Bradley, how much of an impact it had that, you know, everybody was a friend or a relative of someone on board that vessel. It's still the same thing with 10 men. You know, a lot of them came from that area, and it's still just another tragedy for this small town on the lakes to deal with. It's also worth noting that although the two vessels sank in different lakes, they're really not that far apart from each other. Just, you know, kind of as the crows fly, it's like they're, they're relatively close to each other. It's interesting that they were sister ships and how much they had in common, that even, even when sinking, they were still pretty close. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, the only other thing I've got is that the Cedarville is an exceptionally large shipwreck. Some sources said the third largest freighter lost, and others said fourth. You got the Edmund Fitzgerald, the Carl D. Bradley, and the Daniel J. Morrell are the four or the three that I saw listed ahead of it. Another list I saw it only listed the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Carl D. Bradley, so I'm not sure which one is accurate. I'm sure it's probably one of those things where they're relatively close in size, so mm-hmm. you know you could count it one way or the other, but. Point is, it's a large shipwreck, and it's actually pretty accessible for diving. There's a ton of videos online of people diving on it, and uh, there's a lot. Of, like, I might link to a couple of those. It's it's pretty captivating. It's pretty eerie to see, you know, a vessel this large and the waters, you know, that kind of bright green that Lake Michigan and Lake Huron can get and everything. It's it's really interesting. Yeah. So with that stuff out of the way, what uh, what are your thoughts on the whole situation after listening to everything? My final thoughts, I'm going to pull a little bit from the Coast Guard report here. There's some, okay. uh, like I mentioned earlier, they don't write government reports like this anymore. From the Coast Guard report, this is from the first page of it, quote, The prudent mariner must not allow habit, familiarity with the route, frequency of passage, or the presence of various navigational aids to lessen his duty to comply with the rules of the road. The prudent mariner sounds like a trade publication. That, like, it really does, yeah. Would subscribe to <laughs> I that was kind of their that's again on page one in the initial remarks of kind of the findings of the case and how they're assigning blame and obviously here we're talking about a ship captain but I think in a more general sense there's there is a lesson in here to extrapolate from that about the kind of the detrimental role that routine can have on effectiveness mm-hmm. I was I was thinking about this when I when I was reading through the report. You know, when something becomes a routine, we tend to stop assessing individual situations in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of just fall back on how we've done things before, even when we might need a new uh, a new solution, uh, something, I don't know, different or something innovative. Right. Um, you know, we, we talk about shipwrecks here. But again, this is I think this applies to almost anything uh, in life, whether it's professional or personal the more you do something, the less you think about it every time. And on the one hand, that is good, you know, when you are developing a skill, for example. But the other edge of that sword kind of is that you you do stop assessing uh, new situations. And you, you, right. you can overlook details that you should be looking for. That was one of the takeaways I had from this. 
I'm a teacher and I was, I was thinking about this in the context of my job and, you know, saying how, when I present, you know, say a grammar lesson or something, if it's something I've done year after year after year, I do tend to fall into the same patterns. Um, and then occasionally right. it's, it's very good to reassess how am I presenting information? How am I teaching these things? Very different situation than captaining a ship. But again, like I said, I, I really feel that it applies to, you know, anything, whether it's your job or a hobby or any, any sort of skill, really. Yeah, for sure. I think the routine can become dangerous. And I think that's what you're seeing here. It's like you referenced with the beaching thing that, you know, you're familiar with all of this stuff. Like you should be able to do this. But in the same regard, when it's that familiar, you're not even thinking about that stuff. Like it's not even a consideration that something bad might happen. Mm -hmm. Another quote I want to pull from the report. It is recognized that in periods of crisis, the witness's recollection of facts is often at variance with the situation as subsequently determined to have existed. <laughs> I think that's interesting. It connects back to several of our stories, but I think most recently the Bukoba, where you had initial reports from, from survivors, from witnesses, who all agreed that the boat had struck a rock, when in fact that didn't happen. So this sort of collective understanding that ends up not being true. Right. Um, and yeah, it, it, as we talked about in that episode, it's always interesting to see the variance that you can have in eyewitness accounts and how little we can really trust our senses sometimes as, mm -hmm. as humans. And then, of course, these situations are complicated when, you know, one of the witnesses has skin in the game. If I'm the captain of a ship, maybe I remember something in a way that doesn't put me at fault uh, when, right. when, in fact, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and I think in this one, the report is probably allowing Captain Yopik to have a little bit of a graceful exit rather than directly saying, like, we don't believe what you're telling us. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, maybe you misremembered the way the events happened. Right. Could definitely get that reading out of this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a it's an interesting story. Um, it's interesting because of the, lo the location. I mean, how touristy this location is. I mean, it's a place that so many people go, but... You don't even realize like this tragedy that unfolds literally like within sight of the Mackinac Bridge and Mackinac Island, mm -hmm. but also just how avoidable it all was. Like, like we talk about so many of these, like there's just no reason this had to happen. It's different than like a Britannic where like it was a war and it hit a mine. I mean, that that happens in wars, but this doesn't have to happen. And this also like after even after the collision, it doesn't have to happen if they make the right navigational choices. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things where, again, we see that multiple factors go into this rather than just one one event. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then also we can we can share the report. There's just a quick link to it that we can put uh, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely it put is, that report on there. It is cool reading an old timey scanned report written on a typewriter. Yeah. I like that this uh, this Treasury Department stationery has a little like ad at the bottom. Keep freedom in your future with U.S. savings bonds. It's just like an advertisement. You, you just cannot avoid pop-up advertisements anywhere. Oh, it's funny, too, because I know at first when I was reading it, I was like, why is the Department of Transportation involved with the or the Department of Treasury involved with this? And it's because they were in charge of the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, was, I, I didn't realize that at the time either, and I had to, I had to look that up. What, until fairly recently? Was it when they got merged into the Department of Homeland Security? Ah, something like that. But yeah, the Department of Treasury was uh, in charge of the Coast Guard at one point. Very Thanks, Alexander Hamilton. Very cool. So yeah, that is the story of the Cedarville. 
Hope you guys enjoyed listening to that one. Feel free to reach out to us on the social media stuff like we talked about in the beginning. If you have ideas, I know this is one that I heard from multiple people that they wanted to hear. So, yeah, if you've got ideas, definitely send them out. We'll definitely try to get to them and uh, research them the best we can. With all that being said, I hope everybody has a great week, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody.